Hello, I'm your host, Mimi Pickering. This episode of Making Connections News looks at the future for coal miners, former mine lands, and efforts to rebuild coalfield communities. UMWA President Cecil Roberts speaks about the future he believes his members deserve. The Reclaim Act Town Hall focuses on two bills that are crucial to the cleanup of abandoned mine lands and economic transition across coal country. And we include two reports from WEKU's Eastern Standard on current efforts in Kentucky to make former mine lands productive. We begin with an interview with Cecil Roberts shortly after President Joe Biden had announced ambitious plans to combat global warming by cutting U.S. emissions by half over the next decade. That would, of course, impact mining and burning coal. I'm Jeff Young. This week, conversation with Cecil Roberts about coal, climate, and just what this just transition really means. The people in Appalachia believe that they'll be the second coming of the Lord before they see a just transition. It's Welcome to Appalachia America. Cecil Roberts has been president of the United Mine Workers of America since 1995. Only one person has held that position longer, and that was the legendary John L. Lewis. But unlike Lewis, who enjoyed the union's height of power and influence, Robert's tenure as president has come during an epic decline in the coal industry in the U.S. Coal employment has dropped by more than half in the past decade. More than 60 mining companies have declared bankruptcy, coal-fired power plants are closing, and the number of hourly coal workers is now at the lowest point since the government started keeping track of them. Now, a Democratic president, a president who has the support of most organized labor, has an ambitious clean energy agenda to combat climate change. That could spell the end for what's left of coal in the U.S. So Roberts and the UMWA laid out principles that they want Biden to include. Things like targeted tax credits for jobs in coal country and support for the controversial technology known as carbon capture and storage, which could, theoretically at least, keep some coal burners in business. And that's where we started our conversation. Roberts says he thinks the country owes it to his miners and to coal communities to make sure that they don't suffer more economic loss and more pain as part of our climate goals. People might say, well, the UMWA is being awfully bold here proposing ideas to the President of the United States and to the Congress of the United States. But I don't think it's all that bold, given the fact that there's a long record here of sacrifice by coal miners in this nation, whether it's the number of miners that's been killed or the number of miners that's died from black lung to make this country great. There's just no other group of workers that have contributed that much to this nation's economy. The coalfield communities have been devastated. And I'm talking about the people who had depended on various businesses that supported the coal industry. The numbers are a little deceiving, too. When you take the 7,000 miners that lost their jobs last year, 
there's another 28,000 people lost their jobs because of the loss of the coal jobs. There's a high ratio of support jobs attached to coal mining. And if we look at these coal field communities, the underfunded programs, whether it's police, nurses, doctors, firefighters, a lot of those jobs don't exist any longer because the counties can't support them, the cities can't support those jobs, and it's been a more difficult place to live, and it shouldn't be that way when you have a part of your country that's given so much. And by the way, just one more thing in addition to that, these are the most patriotic people on earth. If you look at statistics, take West Virginia, for example, on a per capita basis, uh, more West Virginians were killed in the Vietnam War than any other state. And that, those statistics would hold true for almost all of Appalachia. Mm-hmm. You yourself served in Vietnam before coming back to work in the industry. What do you propose here to possibly change some of those pretty grim statistics? Well, one of the things that is pretty apparent that part of the administration's program is to go to a decarbonized economy, which would make things much worse if there's not a program in place here, some way to give some comfort to people who are working in energy. And let's think about that a little bit broader than coal for a second. One of the things that's happened over the last 10 years has been jobs being created in the gas industry. We discovered how to extract gas from fracking what, 20 years ago or somewhere in that neighborhood. And we have now abundance of gas. But remember this, to decarbonize completely the nation's economy, natural gas can't be part of that. So when we proposed that we find technology that would remove carbon from the burning of coal and also from the utilization of gas, we're protecting those gas jobs. Uh, carbon capture and sequestration is what we're talking about. What we've suggested, and some would like say, well, you're thinking too broadly here. I think we need to start thinking about the jobs we've given up here and bring those jobs back to the extent we can. Think about this. We're going to spend billions of dollars if this infrastructure bill goes forward, and I'm, I'm all for spending that kind of money for infrastructure. But are we really going to then turn around and import steel into this country to build the bridges and the buildings that we need across this country when we could have jobs in this country that would, in a domino effect, create jobs in the hardest hit places in the United States, and that's Appalachia. We should bring these jobs that are now being done in places to pay cheap labor and don't have the best health and safety records and treat people poorly and bring those jobs to the United States. By the way, this is part of Biden's plan. It's just not me talking. Make those middle-class jobs. Right now, almost all these renewable energy jobs don't pay enough to support a family. They're nowhere near the wages that a coal miner makes. So a lot to unpack there. Uh, I want to start with how your proposal, when you rolled it out at the press club and how it was perceived, 
for example, the New York Times had a headline, uh, Coal Miners Union Indicates uh, Willingness to Accept a Switch to Renewable Energy in Exchange for Jobs. Is that your message? That is an odd message. In fact, I'm not real sure how they went from what we said, what we handed out to that headline. But the article, when you read it, was good. I mean, Right, right. But if you had to clarify that point, what is your main takeaway here? You're not against renewables per se, right? Renewables exist now. So to act as though there isn't electricity being produced through solar panels or wind turbines and act as though that's not going to continue is, is like shutting your eyes and saying, please go away. It's not going to happen. What we're saying is we recognize that we're going to continue to use renewables. So let's produce those wind turbines here. Let's produce those solar panels here, but let's make them good union jobs while we're at it. By the way, that's not too outrageous because that's part of Biden's plan. Well, to that point, you know, we spoke with Gina McCarthy, the president's climate advisor, and uh, I played for her a quote from you. And so I'll return the favor here. And labor has to be a big part and they have to be at the table. You know, we don't want just any jobs here. We want high paying jobs and we want union jobs. You know, these folks built our country on the backs of union workers. Let's make sure those union workers actually get benefited. Now, I'm sure you echo that sentiment, but provide some reality check here. Will these uh, new jobs that also address climate change be high-paying union jobs? One of the things we've said here is it's one thing to want these things to happen. It's another thing for those things to materialize. And we're going to be a voice here for saying if they're not high-paying jobs, and they're not union jobs, and we're not going to be supportive of jobs that do not support middle-class families. These workers should not be the ones that consistently have to pay for the mistakes we make in this country when something could be done about it. Bankruptcy laws in this country are obscene. You're uh, staking a lot on carbon capture and storage or carbon capture and sequestration, as you pointed out, not just for coal power, but for other heavy industry that produces a lot of CO2 emissions. So here's my thinking on carbon capture and storage. I've been hearing about the promise of CCS for, gosh, decades, and yet there's not a whole lot to show for it. It just doesn't seem like the industry is willing to or interested in making it happen. So why do you think it's different now? Why do you think we would now see this technology come about when we haven't for the past couple decades? You know, um, I'm not the only one that has ever thought this was a great idea, by the way. I can shut my eyes and still see Senator Barack Obama campaign for the presidency of the United States in Lebanon, Virginia, Lebanon High School, packed house. I spoke right before him. So he knows he's in cold country and he knows that people are worried about their future. And he makes a great speech and he says, if we can find a way to put a man on the moon, we can find a way to burn coal cleanly. Here's the reality of the situation. Does anybody really believe that it's impossible to find a way to burn coal cleanly? We can, we just haven't decided that it's worth the investment. 
And I definitely take your point about it being a global phenomenon and the rest of the world is not losing its appetite for burning coal, uh, especially China, uh, India, most populous countries. I guess I'm asking you bottom line this for me. What's your message to this administration when it comes to clean energy and climate change policy? Is it really, look, we need carbon capture and storage? Well, I think that we're on board with many of the things that the president has proposed, quite frankly. We want to bring jobs here that are currently in China. We want to make those good paying jobs and put those jobs in the hardest hit areas of the country. And that's where I'm from and not far from where you are right now that need these jobs. And we want to make them good paying jobs. We want to make them union jobs. All those are part of the president's uh, position and his team. I think it would be a travesty and we won't support elimination of the jobs that we still have. Another thing people don't talk about, Jeff, is how much more sacrifice do we have to make here? Because if you go back to the Paris Accords, the one segment of our society where we've met our commitments is the electric generation sector. How did we do that? We shut down coal mines and coal fire power plants. So the people who had those jobs have already sacrificed for the environment now, and we're looking at them. So you got to give us a little more, a little more, a little more. And pretty soon, people don't have anything left to give. I mean, so many people have lost their jobs to make that happen. Mm -hmm. And so when people look at us and say, you got to make a commitment, I wonder about the commitment we've already made here in terms of the economies in southern parts of West Virginia. Eastern Kentucky and Southwest Virginia, Southwestern Pennsylvania, for that matter, Southern Ohio, those areas have all been hit hard because of unemployment and the sacrificing of coal-fired power plants to cleaning up the environment. You know, I've always thought of you as a long-range thinker, which I'm sure is part of why you've been such a long-serving leader of your union. So I'm going to ask about what you see ahead. If you think I don't know, five, 10 years down the road, what does the UMWA look like? What does the coal industry look like? What, what does Appalachia look like, do you think? Well, if we do not do some of the things that we have proposed and some of the things that the Biden administration has agreed with us on, or maybe we're agreeing with them, Appalachia is gonna be more devastated than it is now. So what's supporting the economy in West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky and Southwest Virginia now? Still, the best paying jobs that you can find are attached somehow to the coal industry. If you eliminate those jobs, and that's just in one area that I'm talking about right now, you're going to see some devastation economically that none of us want. And if you do manage to strike a bargain here and uh, some of these things do come to pass, what might the future look like? I think the future might very well be much brighter than it looks right now, for sure. For example, if you brought manufacturing jobs to Appalachia, manufacturing jobs tend to last a long, long, long period of time. I see a, a future, it could be bright if we do the right things here. That was UMWA President Robert speaking with Jeff Young for the Appalachia America podcast produced by Ohio Valley Resource and Louisville Public Media. Thirteen Coalfields organizations sponsored the Reclaim Act Town Hall on April 28th 
to build support for the Abandoned Mine Lands Fund Reauthorization and the Reclaim Act, two bills they believe are crucial for environmental cleanup and economic revitalization. Representative Matt Cartwright from Pennsylvania's 8th District talked about why he has sponsored this legislation and other shared stories of successful mine reclamation projects and the dangers of doing nothing to reclaim mine-damaged lands. Dana Kuhnlein from Appalachian Voices hosted the Zoom call. Good afternoon and welcome to the Reclaim, the Reclaim Town Hall. Um, this is an event to about a bill, some bills that would support the cleanup of abandoned mine lands and economic transition efforts across the country. And we are so honored and excited to have Representative Matt Cartwright from Pennsylvania joining us today. He is an incredible champion on these issues in the U.S. House of Representatives. Before I dive in, I want to take a minute to briefly outline why these bills are so important. Um, this crisis, we have a serious crisis. In the last decade, we've lost over 40,000 coal mining jobs and more than 60 coal companies have gone bankrupt. These changes don't just hurt families, but they hurt our county budgets and they hurt our communities. But the opportunity is incredible too. We are in an incredible region with incredible assets um, and community leaders have been working for years to develop the future for the foundation for a brighter future. And these bills are an amazing opportunity to make a huge difference. So the Reclaim Act would commit a billion dollars to allow communities to turn these economic liabilities that hold back progress into economic assets. And this fund is essential to allow communities to dream big and to plan for the bright future that they want to build. The AML fund reauthorization would allow states and local groups to continue one of the most successful environmental programs in our nation's history. Since 1977, 978,000 acres have been cleaned up, but much more remains. And these sites threaten people, ecosystems, and are a terrible burden unless we act. But the good news is we have incredible people on our side uh, working for incredible change. Um, the AML fund is set to expire this year, but the bills introduced by Representative Cartwright would allow that to would allow that fund to continue for the next 15 years. Thank you, Dana, um, and thank you all for inviting me to share the important we're doing doing in Congress to support uh, former coal communities and and abandoned mine cleanup. I've been working on mine reclamation issues. Uh, in Congress for several years now, and I recently reintroduced two mine-focused bills, one to expend, extend the Abandoned Mine Land Trust Funds uh, for another 15 years, and that was SMACRA, um, and a second, the Reclaim Act, to accelerate the use of the AML funds to rec reclaim abandoned mines faster and and of course, spur economic development. These are bills supported by both Republicans and Democrats because we all agree that cleaning up hazardous mine lands and creating jobs is just the right thing to do for the American people. Uh, I know that folks on this call know how vital it is that we renew the AML Trust Fund and pass the Reclaim Act for Appalachian states like Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Kentucky. And that's really the key to the bipartisan nature of all of this is of course we have Democrats and Republicans strewn throughout the whole region. 
uh, coal region. Parts of the Susquehanna uh, and Lackawanna rivers in, in northeastern Pennsylvania, you know, are stained with orange, you know, with oxidized metals from the abandoned mine land drainage, coal refuse leaks, harmful chemicals like arsenic, lead, and mercury into the surrounding land and water. Towns and cities are dealing with abandoned mine issues on a daily basis in our part of the country. And these problems are not unique to Northeastern Pennsylvania. Former coal communities, as I said, all across America are plagued by the harmful effects of abandoned mine lands. To help communities recover, it's going to take continued investment and con continued commitment. Uh, and we know from decades of experience that the Abandoned Mine Land Trust Fund is one of the best ways to help former coal communities recover and clean up the, this mine land. Back home in Northeastern Pennsylvania, former AML sites have been transformed into a distribution hub, a high school, a retail center in Wilkesbury Township. Uh, the AML Trust Fund transformed these sites from toxic wastelands to productive uh, centers of commerce and places where kids can uh, learn and people can work. Uh, we have our success stories, but our work is far from over. In Northeastern Pennsylvania alone, we have over 300 AML sites that still need to be reclaimed. Places that are uh, open gashes in the landscape, places where water courses in and out and carries up pollution into our creeks and streams and rivers. Now the Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement estimates that it'll cost at least $10 billion to reclaim the remaining high priority abandoned mine land sites across the country. And the AML Trust Fund is set to expire in September of this year. Uh, that is the stark reality. That's why it's critical that Congress and local advocacy groups continue to work together to raise our voices to get the AML Trust Fund reauthorized. But there's also no reason that former coal communities should have to wait decades to have cleaner water and more job opportunities in their areas. And that's where the Reclaim Act comes in. The Reclaim Act of 2021 would accelerate the release of $1 billion from the remaining unappropriated balance in the AML Reclamation Fund to revitalize coal communities uh, at a faster rate. It would help get more AML sites cleaned up faster, revitalize these communities quickly, avoid waiting for decades to improve the quality of drinking water and bring needed jobs back uh, all along the entire Appalachian mountain range. Now, needless to say, passing these bills is a top priority. Uh, and I'm happy to say it is also a priority for our new president, Joe Biden. And the proof is uh, in black and white on paper. He made sure to include it in his American Jobs Plan framework. So uh, that's, a, that's, that's good news. I'm bullish on that. Uh, that to, uh, and and I'm, I'm optimistic uh, that together we can, we can get the job done. We owe it to the people who live and work in, in these communities. This is so important. Failure is just not an option. It, it, to me, it is unthinkable that we don't renew uh, SMACRA and the Abandoned uh, Mine Lands Trust Fund. Uh, uh, and, and it's also um, um, 
it's also not an option to fail on the, the Reclaim Act and get this money. Uh, there's no reason to delay get putting this money to use right away. Finally, thank you all for tuning in and advocating in your communities for AML reclamation. Let's get this over the finish line, people. That's so exciting. Thank you so much. Sure. Um, we, so we wanted to take some time in this call to hear about some of the incredible uh, things that are already happening, but we also want to talk about the importance of the AML reauthorization, which would allow us to address some of the basic um, health and safety issues that communities are facing. So I wanted to hand it over to Mary Cromer to, uh, from Appalachian Citizens Law Center. Um, so now we're traveling to Kentucky. Hey, thanks, Dana. My name is Mary Cromer. I am Deputy Director of Appalachian Citizens Law Center, and we are located in Whitesburg, Kentucky, in the far eastern part of the state. Um, and I'm an attorney, and I've been working in eastern Kentucky on coal mining issues for the past 12 years. And in those 12 years, I have fielded a lot of calls from residents who are dealing with abandoned mine land issues at their properties. And I've even litigated some of those cases. And because of that experience, I know that we must do more than just look at AML as an economic development opportunity. Um, many of these sites are simply environmental and public safety hazards, and, and they're in locations where economic development just isn't possible. So as a simple environmental justice matter, we must make sure that there's enough money to clean up those sites by not only reauthorizing the AML fund, but by also increasing funding for AML cleanup. So in this presentation, I'm gonna focus on Kentucky's AML program. Kentucky's program faces a severely declining budget. Uh, that's the graph on the light, right. And at the same time, Kentucky is getting an increasing number of yearly AML complaints, including an increasing number of high priority complaints. Um, the state has at least $900 million in identified AML projects right now for which it lacks funding. Many of the Kentucky AML sites are landslides or where landslides are threatened. Um, and climate change has a big impact on this. Climate change modeling has shown that our area is inc increasingly prone to really high intensity rainfall events. And Kentucky's division of abandoned mine land attributes the increase in complaints that it's seen to those high intensity rainfall events. Um, climate change related storm patterns in our area are significantly increasing the risk of landslides, not just with AML, but throughout the area. Um, but just in the last 16 months, Kentucky's Division of Abandoned Mine Lands has logged 26 additional dangerous landslides into its inventory. And unfortunately, as the funding has decreased and the need has increased, Kentucky's Division of Abandoned Mine Lands is really having to make some difficult decisions. And I wanna sort of highlight what's happened with the Johnson family in Letcher County, Kentucky as one tragic example of what can happen as a result of those decisions. And this is just one of the calls I've received in recent months dealing with AML issues in which the state has told the family that there just isn't sufficient money to address the issue. So here's what's happened to the Johnsons. Two years ago, a mine road on the mountain above the Johnsons' house began to slide, and that initial slide was above the family's yard and pool, but it wasn't a direct, directly above their home. Kentucky's Division of Abandoned Mine Land came out and investigated and determined that the slide was caused by an AML issue and that the mountainside was cracking and dropping down, 
But at that time, DAML told the Johnsons that it wasn't a priority site. So the state could not fund stabilizing the mountain above their home, but to call them back if the situation got worse. Then on March 1st, 2021, just a few months ago, about one in the morning, the Johnsons awoke to a loud noise. The slide was coming down and it had covered the air conditioner outside their house. A neighbor was banging on their door shouting, get out, get out, the mountain is coming down. The Johnsons didn't have time to get out. The second part of the slide came down, knocking everyone to the ground and it knocked the trailer completely off its foundation. Their home was completely destroyed. The Division of Abandoned Mine Land came out to investigate that afternoon and told them that it was now a high priority site. DAML said it would use its funds to stabilize their mountainside, but the state could not use any of its funding to pay for the complete destruction of their house. The Johnsons are currently staying with relatives until they can get another place to live. They don't have insurance coverage that would cover the destruction of their house. And so if any of you on this call are interested, please consider donating to the Johnsons so that they can replace their home. I've put the family's PayPal link here at the bottom of the screen. Um, and please contact me if you have any questions about that. I present this Johnson's, the Johnson family's tragedy with their, their permission as just one example of the terrible environmental justice consequences that will continue to arise if the AML fund is not reauthorized and if more money is not allocated for funding AML cleanup. Thank you for this time. There already are new business projects throughout the coal fields that are demonstrating what could be possible on a much larger scale if the Reclaim Act was passed. The town hall highlighted one innovative effort in southern West Virginia. Uh, hello, everybody. My name is Fritz Bettner. Uh, I'm with the West Virginia University Center for Resilient Communities, and I've been working with the Blue Acre Appalachian Aquaponics Project in Kermit, West Virginia since 2016 funds. Um, and the project was started by Refresh Appalachia with Ben Gilmer and Nathan Hall, you know, scouring the, the area, looking at the AML list across the coal fields, focusing on uh, Mingo County. Uh, finding a couple different sites, this one was just inside of the town boundary, had several uh, dangerous features such as uh, open portals and a slag pile to be remediated, and really wanted to focus on what a local community economic development could look like that's going to support a larger regional economy towards agriculture production. Um, and so that they wanted to create a financially sustainable enterprise um, using aquaponics. And I'll go a little bit over what aquaponics is, but it's a way of uh, developing um, or producing food, nutritious food, on a little bit of land and high volumes and a very consistent basis to actually build more of an, an employment opportunity on site and then teach other, you know, aspiring entrepreneurs on creating their own aquaponic system. And then just really starting to build a regional economy around agriculture as, a, as this project has been tied into other regional food system development projects. Uh, the budget was about $3.5 million. Um, and again, it's been going on for a long time. A lot of different things have happened. But through that time, um, both the center got involved, the Mingo County Redevelopment Authority is the actual grant holder. And then um, at a certain time, Sprouting Farms, which is a, uh, is, a, is a farm business incubator actually in the southeastern part of the state, you know, sort of came in to partner to help get the operation um, up and going. And the whole goal of this is to create a locally managed and potentially locally owned uh, agriculture business in, in the town of Kermit. They're going to employ locally, provide an education opportunity, 
and also a business training center for other aquaponics operations. And so real simply, you know, aquaponics is where you're combining fish, swimming around in tanks, doing their thing, for producing basically fertilizer, and then it feeds a hydroponic growing operation. And the beautiful thing about this is that it happens year round, 365 days a year and, produce, and produces, um, produces a volume of product that is very consistent, both in quality and both in quantity, which is very important for trying to develop a customer base uh, in our modern agricultural world. Um, and so it creates an ecosystem where both the plants and the fish thrive. And both of those products are harvested and sold through a variety of market channels across the state and also locally. And so the facility itself went through a heavy design you know, phase where we, you know, due to the grant, the grant type, it took many years of actually going to the site. We hired an engineering firm to help us deal with the remediation issues, partnering with the DEP and the Office of Surface Mining, um, did a development site and then began construction. And it ends up with about a 10,000 square foot warehouse six fish tanks, you know, the raft systems. And the other nice thing about this is that we made sure that it was USDA food safety compliant. So this product can be sold to any customer anywhere across the region and follow any type of USDA or food safety um, guidelines. It also has its own processing. So all the fish is processed on site and delivered fresh to right now, we have a waiting list that is months long just from local residents wanting the fish that's produced there. So it's pretty interesting. Um, it will produce about, you know, over 90,000 heads of lettuce, over 4,500 pounds of tilapia. That's the fish that we're growing there now. Uh, and a lot of different bunches of other types of greens and in, in in another type of system that is there. Estimated revenues around $250,000 a year. Presently, it is employing three full-time employees and getting ready to, to hold on to two part-time employees. And again, there's a big educational component to this. Um, and so there will be a K through 12 education program because it's really a neat ecosystem to learn chemistry and biology and schools are already coming to the facility and learning how this ecosystem works. There will also be partnerships with a variety of education, agro-business agro support programs that will allow them to teach other folks how to build their own systems because these systems are not complicated. It's PVC pipe and water and some bubblers. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating how simple it is and it's something that could be replicated throughout uh, the gold fields. Um, and it can produce all sorts of different type of fish other than tilapia. Tilapia is just much easier to deal with. Trying to, trying to raise trout is the, the parameters for life for trout are very, is very restrictive, where tilapia are very easy. The business is in operation. It is doing very, very well. We have three local employees that are all born and raised in Kermit. Um, and all of the sales, predominantly all of the sales and interest has been overwhelming in a town of 400, you know, in an area with, with fairly high unemployment and a high poverty rate. The, 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 the support that the town has given to this project and how the town, I believe, you know, sees this project as a hallmark within, within even their identity. I mean, even the naming of the project was left up to the town. We went through a naming and a branding process and the town decided what they wanted this to be called. Um, we're right now presently selling to schools, grocery stores, uh, people walking in, you know, off the street and then just purchasing locally. And it's also integrated into a larger local food program called Turnrow Appalachian Farm Collective, which delivers local food uh, from one side of the state to the other. Um, it is about in its eight month or so of actual operation. Um, and we're hoping to, that this will transition into its own individual entity. Sprouting Farms is sort of helping to spin it up. 
Um, and then I think the future is uh, is very positive there. And I think it's just a way to use these funds to, to invest in a small economic development project in a, in a fairly isolated place in West Virginia and, you know, have large dividends both locally, but also, you know, regionally developing the local food uh, economic system. WEKU's Eastern Standard has also been reporting on work going on in Kentucky to reclaim, repurpose, and reforest mine lands. Host Tom Martin spoke to Clifford Smith of the Appalachian Renewal Project and interviewed University of Kentucky professor Chris Barton about the value of reforesting eastern Kentucky mining lands. Finding productive, sustainable uses for former Appalachian surface mine sites is Clifford Smith's mission these days. Clifford heads the Appalachian Renewal Project, and he joins us from his home near Boston. Welcome to Eastern Standard, Clifford. Thank you, Tom. And uh, tell us about the Appalachian Renewal Project. What is it? What do you do? Uh, Yes, our mission as an impact developer is to show and demonstrate that the former mine sites in Appalachia have an economic role to play in Appalachia's future, that these lands can be reused, repurposed in sustainable economic ways. You have a pilot project underway. It's called the Wilds at Emily Creek. Tell us about that. Yeah, the Wilds of Emily Creek is is our pilot project. It's a former mine site located principally in Martin County, Kentucky, but the property actually straddles into Pike County. And uh, this site we are using really to show the different businesses that can be developed on a mine site. Our focus is on agriculture, recreation, and then certain industrial uses of the site. And we look to partner with local entrepreneurs to develop these types of businesses. Are you looking at those various categories as compatible? Industrial and and agriculture, for example, wouldn't seem to to be compatible. Yes. So in that regard, the industrial uses are very select and would leverage assets on the site. So when we think about industrial uses, that would be in the form generally of renewable energy or activities that would leverage the woodland assets that are on the site. So, for example, extracting forest slash uh, or biomass out of the forest that can be reused and converted into value-added products. So that would be the type of industrial application that we might think of. But by and large, the majority of the focus is on agriculture and recreation. And there, there can be strong interactions. And in fact, people talk about agro-tourism as a business segment, and we can see that as well. Okay. Well, Clifford, I know you have a background in investment as Director of International Equities for the the Boston Company Asset Management. And I'm wondering how that experience informs what you're doing in restoring former surface mine sites in Appalachia. Yeah. Well, you know, my background is varied, and my most recent professional activity was as an investor for 20 years. We focused on non-U.S. markets. Um That component of my background is helpful in terms of 
analyzing and assessing the economics of different business ventures that we could engage in. And I use it that way. But prior to my life as an investor, I trained as a mechanical engineer. And I grew up actually in the coal field areas of Western Pennsylvania. So the, uh, you know, from the Appalachian region, and I actually witnessed the evolution of that region as it faced the decline in the coal industry a lot earlier than what's been happening in Eastern Kentucky. The, the area where I grew up was mined out much earlier and there was a transition that occurred and that helps inform me as well in terms of the possibilities that exist for the communities in Eastern Kentucky. And that's, that's what I want to show and demonstrate. That's really what drives our project. Well, uh, speaking of demonstrating and getting back to the pilot project, the wilds at Emily Creek, how did you go about acquiring that land and what's your source of investment capital? Yes. Yeah, so the, the, the wilds um, came about as a result of economic pressure on the coal industry, to be honest, Tom. Um, there were bankruptcies that were occurring around 2015 that resulted in this property being shed as part of the bankruptcy proceedings of Alpha Natural Resources. So I independently really drove this effort to acquire the land and begin the project, but we're actively looking for partners uh, in our project. Getting capital to do this work is an objective of ours. Now, our strategy is to develop ecosystem credits or the credits for restoring the uh, ecological conditions on the site as a source of financing of what we're doing. But as you may know, the sensitivity of corporate America has increased dramatically over the last five or 10 years around environment and social impact. And this area of Kentucky really offers an opportunity for corporates to really show their commitment to that um, because not only has there been a significant environmental impact, as you know, the area has suffered really from poverty and some of the associated health conditions that seem to uh, company poverty um, in a significant way. And we're hopeful that we can generate corporate interest in what we're doing as we show results. So my vision for the future is that, well, there's no magic single bullet that's going to alleviate the pressure that the, you know, mono industry that coal was uh, for these areas. There are a lot of little and a variety of smaller enterprises that will rise up out of this situation and begin to grow and support the people of eastern Kentucky. And that's, that's really what we're all about. And we've been working closely with the community to try to do that. We like to say there's no silver bullet, but lots of silver BBs. That's right. <laughs> Clifford Smith uh, heads the Appalachian Renewal Project. Thanks again, Clifford. Thank you, Tom. 
Flooding is the most frequent and costly natural hazard in Kentucky. On average, the annual losses top $40 million. Water runoff from heavy rainfall is greatest in areas with steep slopes and little vegetation. Eastern Kentucky, once home to one of the world's great forests, may have once exported as much hardwood lumber as any place on earth. After the trees were gone, industry turned to coal. Now that market has collapsed. So how can people who've been left behind make a decent living? Ecotourism gets a lot of attention and discussion, but are we ready for company? This week, that question brings us to the doorstep of Chris Barton. Chris is a professor of forest hydrology and watershed management in UK's Department of Forestry and Natural Resources and former director of the UK Appalachian Center. He's also president of Green Forest Work, whose operations director, Michael French, spoke with us in late April about reforesting abandoned mine sites. Chris Barton, welcome to Eastern Standard. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. Is there a direct connection between deforestation and the flash flooding that we've seen so often hitting communities in eastern Kentucky? Absolutely. We know that the steep sloping areas of eastern Kentucky are prone to flooding regardless, but when you get rid of the forest there, that actually enhances the flooding potential in those areas. And the deforestation really does two things, and it depends on what type of deforestation too, but one thing that happens when we deforest a site, if we're logging or if we're mining, is that we tend to compact the land in places where we're using heavy equipment and things like that. So that compaction can lead to increased surface runoff, and that surface runoff goes directly into our streams and can elevate the flooding potential. So in our forestry operations, in sort of the general logging area, you're not going to have a lot of compaction. But when we do forest those steep slopes in eastern Kentucky, um, we have to put in a fairly extensive road network. And those roads can just be a pathway for water to flow down. So we spend a lot of emphasis and a lot of time in um, our extension efforts to train people to incorporate techniques to slow that water down and move it off of the road so that we can actually diminish the flooding potential. On surface mines, it's the same thing, but it's a much larger footprint. I mean, the whole mine gets compacted in the reconstruction of that landscape, and the limited infiltration on that whole watershed then ultimately leads to increased flooding. So the compaction is an issue. The second issue is we're getting rid of the trees, <laughs> and those trees are so important for utilizing the water and slowing that water down and keeping it from running off of the surface. And we just published a, a paper from 50 years' worth of data at UK's Robinson Forest where we have actually been measuring the rainfall coming into that forest and the stream flow going out of that forest. And what we found is on an annual basis, about 60% of the rainfall that comes into the forest doesn't leave via the stream. It leaves via evapotranspiration or evaporation and, and utilization of the water by the forest, by the trees. So when we get rid of those trees, suddenly that pump of water that's going out into the atmosphere from the trees and the evaporation that's happening within that canopy is lost. So you have much more water going into our stream systems and, you know, increasing the uh, 
potential for flooding in those areas. Chris, I know that your work helped lead to the establishment of the Appalachian Regional Reforestation Initiative and planting more than 100 million trees on active coal mine sites in Appalachia. Uh, What are some important outcomes of that work? Well, there are many. Um, So one of the big things with um, ARI was that we really opened a lot of people's eyes that you could put trees back on these mined landscapes. Many efforts to reforest these lands failed, and it became sort of the conventional practice to turn these sites into grasslands instead of the forests that were there prior to the mining. So we we basically showed techniques that would allow these sites to be successfully reforested. So the planting of 100 million trees meant tens of thousands of acres that would have been in non-forest state were actually reclaimed as forest. So one of the big issues with deforestation is forest fragmentation and the creation of these big gaps in a contiguous forest. So if you looked at a map of eastern Kentucky, say in 1950, it would be almost continuous forest. And now if you look at Google Earth or something like that, you see all of these little islands of non-forest. So that becomes a real issue with species migration and wildlife habitat. And reconnecting those forests actually helps with the, the conservation of a lot of wildlife species that are dependent upon those you know, thick, dense, continuous forests. Well, tell us about your work at Starfire Mine. That's near Hazard in Perry County and, and how that's made a difference in slowing runoff. Yeah, so Starfire Mine was um, an experimental area that in the late 1990s, Dr. Don Graves, who was at the University of Kentucky and some other folks, set up this experiment to look at techniques for loosening the compaction of these mine lands and how that would affect the growth of trees on these lands. So they went in and and looked at a couple of different techniques, one of them ripping up the soil or, or essentially plowing it. And another technique was having the mining company just simply, you know, do what they felt like they needed to do to be compliant with the law. And then the last bit of spoil placement or rock placement, um, just put in nice closely abutted piles about, oh, six to eight feet in height, and then take the tops of those piles off with one pass of a bulldozer and to minimize any type of compaction. And I often refer to it as like a raised bed in your garden. And then they planted all of these trees on these two and a half acre plots. And so 20 years later, um, that compaction reduction experiment really worked. And we have 80% survival of these are all native, you know, forest trees like oaks and yellow poplar, black walnut. And the trees now are 50 feet tall and you have closed canopy and they're functioning like a, a natural forest would function. So one of the things that we were interested in just recently is when we put these forests back on these mine lands, are they behaving like a forest that was, you know, on a regular non-mined land? So we set up an experiment looking at this water issue. Are these forests, as they're developing, putting organic matter in the soil and, and the roots are breaking up the compaction and essentially allowing pathways for water to infiltrate into the soil instead of running off? And 
Sure enough, we did a study with the U.S. Geological Survey and with some help from the Natural Resource Conservation Survey and, and dug soil pits and and looked at these infiltration rates and things like that. And what we found was that the infiltration on these sites were actually recovering to levels that were more similar to an unmined forest. Another thing that we did, which seems you know kind of silly, but no one had ever done this because we didn't have a lot of examples of mature forest on these mine lands. We looked at something called canopy interception. And canopy interception is just the amount of water that hits the leaves and the canopy of the tree and then evaporates off that and, and never gets down into the ground. And we know from our work at Robinson Forest that that number on an annual basis is it can be about 20% of the annual rainfall that comes in never gets to the ground because it leaves via this canopy interception process. So we simply just measured that at Starfire, and lo and behold, we found that's exactly the numbers we were getting. Um, in hardwood sort of forest, we were getting around 20% of the annual precipitation was evaporated right back off to the atmosphere. In conifer stands, it was actually a little bit higher. It was closer to 30%. So restoring that function, the hydrologic function, is really a basic part of restoring the forest. So there, it's tied together. Um, and it was really neat, even though it seemed pretty obvious that that was what was going to happen, it was one of the first times that that's actually been demonstrated. Well, that also goes to preventing that runoff, too. Uh, Absolutely. What about forest farming, silvopasturing, it's called, or, or agroforestry? Can that be a realistic option, do you think, for economic renewal in eastern Kentucky? Yeah, I think it can. Um, I mean, certainly the post-mining landscape allows for that. You have some large, expansive grasslands and some forest in there, Um that really need to be managed. Um, if you don't manage them, they're going to turn into havens of invasive species colonization. So we think that this idea of silvopasturing, um, you know, where you do intentional rotational grazing of animals, cattle, sheep, goats, um, could be a possibility on these sites. And one of the important things about thinking about silvopasturing on these sites is that after the reclamation is done, you know, the soils are, are very poor. And one of the things that silvopasturing has shown is that that can improve the soil health in these systems. So it can add nutrients. You can increase the soil microbial diversity by doing these type of um, pasturing techniques. And also, you know, in some cases, as I mentioned, we have a real problem with exotic invasive species on these sites, such as autumn olive, multiflora rose, and it's been found that goats will actually eat these things. And so it might be a good way of sort of better managing the land, but it could also provide economic opportunities. Um, these sites, I think, will be very good for forestry operations. And, and the forest industry in Kentucky is a, you know, a $9 billion a year industry. And so we have about 350,000 acres of these mine lands in eastern Kentucky, so why not put them back in forest, for one thing? But are there other agricultural opportunities for these sites? And I don't think we're going to put them back into row crops like corn or wheat or soybean or anything like that. 
But grazing, you know, and combined with forestry actually makes a lot of sense on these sites. And it's something that we need to look into further. Well, bringing this back around to what I mentioned in the introduction to the prospects for ecotourism, and we're going to be talking with EKU geologist Alice Jones about what's been revealed in her work surveying water quality in creeks, streams, and rivers. And I'm wondering, from your perspective as a hydrologist, are are you concerned about what's in the water? I'm always concerned about what's in the water. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I get this question a lot, and... Um, you know, about Eastern Kentucky and the fact that I'm in Lexington. Well, the source of our drinking water in Lexington is in the headwaters that are in Eastern Kentucky and are affected by all of these things. And so I'm concerned about, you know, the chemistry of the water. And we know that we have a lot of issues with some of the mining runoff with elevated salt levels. And we've done several studies um, in Eastern Kentucky showing the impacts of elevated conductivity or or salts in the water and how that's affecting amphibian communities, particularly salamanders. It's really um, hard on them. And we also are concerned about, you know, sewage in these streams. Um, a lot of these streams have elevated levels of, of coliform bacteria. That would be a human health issue if you swam or drank in them. When I was a kid, I grew up in central Kentucky, and I remember we would spend weekends at um, Boonesboro Beach <laughs> and, you know, swim in the Kentucky River. And we fished in the Kentucky River and we ate fish in, from the Kentucky River. And it saddens me that my kids aren't going to have that opportunity. We, you know, we're advised not to swim in the Kentucky River and not to eat the fish that are coming from the Kentucky River. So I think about that a lot. And recently we had you know, a, a relatively large flood event um, in eastern Kentucky, and I was teaching a class at Robinson Forest, and it's sad to see that not only the things that we can't see in the water, but there's so much solid waste and pollution in our streams. And with that flood, um, I was driving in Breathitt County along Troublesome Creek, and there was so much trash um, in the trees and along the banks, and uh, it's just you know, if you really are starting to think about bringing people to Kentucky for ecotourism and anything around water, you know, fishing, kayaking, canoeing, you want to make sure that it's a, a pleasant and enjoyable experience. So we really do need to focus on both cleaning up our water from the perspective of the water chemistry, but also the physical waste, the solid waste, and the aesthetics of these streams as well. So I think we have a little bit of work to do, not to say that every stream is like that, but we do have a lot of um, streams that could, you know, use some work. Well, I think that uh, answers the question, are we ready for company? And I would say we've got some work to do. Yeah, I think so. I think so, but I think we have the opportunity to make it happen. You know, it's such a beautiful area, and we have wonderful natural resources we do have examples of beautiful, diverse forest, and we do have great examples of wonderful headwater stream systems, but there's some work to be done. Chris Barton, professor of forest hydrology and watershed management at UK and president of Green Forest Work. Those two stories come courtesy of Eastern Standard, which is aired weekly on WEKU and available online. 
Thank you for listening to Making Connections News. All of our stories about opportunities and challenges for diversifying Appalachia's economy and renewing our communities are available on our website or wherever you find your podcasts. Please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. I'm your host, Mimi Pickering, from WMMT and Making Connections News.